Uh, so it's good to be with you tonight. Been looking forward to this for some time. You can open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That'll be our text tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For just about everyone in this room, we are gathered together tonight because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is built on historical events, real moments in history, historical facts, facts like this. A boy was born of a young virgin woman named Mary. They named him Jesus. He lived a sinless life for 33 years. He had a ministry and disciples. He called men and women and children to follow him and to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. At the end of his ministry, he was put on trial because of his claim to be God. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends and was sentenced to death on a cross. He was killed, buried, and three days later resurrected from the grave and then ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Those are some of the historical facts that the gospel is built upon, real events in the history of our world. But on another important part of the gospel message is that there are theological truths behind those historical facts. There are theological truths behind those historical events. The Bible speaks to many different theological nuances of what took place when Christ died on the cross. He died to save us. He died to redeem us. He died to bear the penalty for our sin, to satisfy God's wrath, to earn God's favor for us, to justify us, and much more. Theological terms that describe these events abound. Atonement, substitution, salvation, redemption, expiation, propitiation, justification, reconciliation, and more. It's easy to forget or just never think of all that took place from a theological standpoint when Christ gave his life on the cross. Many of those terms that I just emphasized have a lot of overlap in them, and they're all describing the same event. But our text that we're going to study tonight lets one of those theological nuances really rise to the surface and sing its song, and that is the doctrine of reconciliation. Turn your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Paul writes this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In those verses, Paul lets the doctrine of reconciliation sing its song. For just a moment in the book of 2 Corinthians, he unleashes a 
a torrent of this doctrine. Five times in five verses, he, he mentions reconciliation. And then he never mentions it again for the rest of the book. It's not a term that Paul actually uses all that often. He only uses it in three places regarding man's relationship with God. But when he unleashes this term reconciliation, it cuts with meaning. It's a significant doctrine, an amazing doctrine, and it's one that ought to drive us to our knees in thankfulness. Reconciliation means this. Reconciliation is a change in relationship from enmity to peace. A change in relationship from enmity to peace. Again, this is one of the theological nuances of what occurred at the cross. That there was a path that was paved for reconciliation with God. A change in relationship from enmity to peace. From opposition to friendship. It's a fundamental change in relationship. From negative to positive. It's not just erasing what is bad, but also offering what is good. Romans chapter 5 verses 8 and 10 summarize the essence of reconciliation so well. Paul there writes this, that God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul speaks of reconciliation and when he does, it's referencing the fact that we were originally recipients of wrath. We were destined for wrath. We were enemies of God. But we are now, if we are saved by the blood of Christ, recipients of favor. We go from hostility to peace with God. Because of reconciliation, we can say, though I was an enemy of God, I am now at peace with God. That is an amazing doctrine. It's an amazing reality. You were an enemy of God. Think about this. There's there's no situation you could draw up in your mind that is worse than this reality. That the sovereign, all-powerful, transcendent God viewed you as an enemy. It's the worst possible situation imaginable. There's no more dangerous position that you could be in than to be an enemy of the all-powerful God. And he, through no merit of your own, sent his son. He sent his son to die, to make a way for peace. To no longer be his enemy, but to be a friend. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, what Paul is doing, if we zoom out for just a moment, he's, he's explaining some of the motivation behind how he can so faithfully minister the way that he does. That's if we zoom out what he's, what he's doing in this chapter, explaining the motivation behind how he can so faithfully minister in the way that he does because Paul's ministry has been under attack. And so he's saying, I'm not, not doing this for selfish reasons. There are not ulterior motives. In the early verses of chapter 5, he says, look, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm looking to heaven. I want to be present with the Lord, not apart from him. I'm, I'm ministering towards that end. In verse 11 of chapter 5, he says there's a fear of the Lord that's driving his ministry. In verse 14, he says that the love of Christ is what compels him to do his work. In verse 15, he says, I'm, I'm doing this because Christ died so that we would live for him. And in verse 17, which is really the hinge point to our text tonight, 
Paul defends his ministry. He explains why he can do everything that he does by saying it's because I'm a new creature. The old has passed away. The new things have come. So Paul picks up this doctrine of reconciliation by first saying, the old things have left in me. They no longer dominate me. The old things no longer dominate the Christian. There are new realities, new life, new things that are now present in the believer. Paul comments that all of these new things come from God. Look at verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 5. Now all these things are from God. These things that he's referencing are the new thing. The old is gone, the new has come, and these new things, they, they come from God. Paul says, if there's anything new in me, if there's anything good in me, it comes from God. He alone can produce anything of value in me, anything that is right and good. He alone can produce everything new in me. And it's in commenting on these new things that are showing up in Paul as a believer that he launches into this doctrinal refrain about reconciliation. And as he does that, here's how I'm going to structure my content tonight. See, attempting to reflect Paul's structure here. I'm going to give you two reminders about reconciliation for every new creature. All right, tonight, two reminders about reconciliation for every new creature. And after we look at those reminders, we'll pull some application for us in how we think about our ambassadorship of the gospel message and how we apply that to the people around us. Two reminders about reconciliation for every new creature. The first reminder is this. God is the one who grants reconciliation. God is the one who grants reconciliation. Verses 18 and 19, they're, they're a little bit unique. It, they're essentially repetitions of each other. In verses 18 and 19, Paul's going to say the same thing, kind of two different ways. Look again at verses 18 and 19 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and he has committed us to the word of reconciliation. In these two verses, Paul is emphasizing God's role in producing new things in us. God is the one who, who, who grants reconciliation. It comes from him. We cannot reconcile ourselves. It is his gift. He's the one that produces this reconciling stuff within us. And so what Paul is going to emphasize as far as this reconciliation stuff that God produces in us, he's going to emphasize two things. He's going to emphasize first that God gives us a new relationship that is reconciled. And he's going to give us a new ministry of reconciliation. This is the new reconciliation stuff that God gives us. A new reconciled relationship and a new reconciling ministry. Those come from God. He grants it. Let's look first at that relationship. The beginning of verse 18 again says that God reconciled us to himself through Christ. We don't bring this reconciliation upon ourselves. He reconciled us. He reconciled us. Now this is kind of counterintuitive to how we often imagine reconciliation happening within relationships. 
When there's a problem, typically the process of reconciliation is that the offender goes to the one offended and offers restitution so that the relationship can be restored. It's initiated traditionally by the offender. Now, Paul is fully aware that we bear a responsibility of repentance that leads to salvation, but that's not his emphasis here. We don't seek reconciliation. God does. He grants it. He reconciles us to himself. God is the mover here. He is the actor. We are the offenders. We are the enemies. But God reconciled us. God is the one who grants reconciliation. And he does this. Look back at verse 18. He reconciled us to himself through Christ. So not only does God grant peace, reconciliation to his enemies, but he does it through the death of his son. He does it through the death of his son. How, imagine, how unimaginable is that? That God would make an enemy, would make a friend of an enemy by sending his son to die. That is the wonder of the doctrine of reconciliation because the extent of our enmity against God is so great that the cost to restore that relationship is the death of the Son of God. His Son paid our penalty. God reconciled us to Himself through His own Son. I want to take just a moment and clarify a, a misconception of reconciliation in which really the Father is seen as the one who is wrathful, which is true, but there's a misunderstanding here. And Christ is stated to be the one who is compassionate on us and gives up his life for us simply to appease the Father's wrath. He's the wrathful one and Christ is the compassionate one. That's actually not what this text says. God is the reconciler. He reconciled us to himself through Christ. Reconciliation is the work of the Father through the Son. It's the work of the Father through the Son. He grants it. He gives it. He initiates it. The Son carries it out because it is the will of the Father. And yes, reconciliation is necessary because God's wrath is pointed at his enemies. But look at verse 19. Verse 19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God is the mover here. God the Father. In verse 19, Paul restates the same truths with some additional comments. He says, God was in Christ, reconciled the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. Again, this is repetition of that same truth in verse 18. God's work of reconciliation is offered to every man. It's offered to the entire world. Now, it does not mean that every man is reconciled. Every man is not reconciled with God. For reconciliation to take place, we must respond to God's offer of peace. But the offer is offered to every man. Christ has paid the penalty and the offer is given to every man. If they would receive this gift that he gives. Verse 19 says he will not count their sins against them. Forgiveness. Peace. Reconciliation. How can our sins not be counted against us? Because they were counted to Christ. They were counted to Christ. And Paul's going to explain that later on in this passage in verse 21. We'll get there in just a moment. Before we get there, I just want to recognize that these truths, 
this doctrine of reconciliation, it must produce in us worship and, and praise, thanksgiving and humility, wonder and awe that God would reconcile us to himself and that he would not count our sins against us. We, we don't deserve this, men. We don't deserve this. We deserve wrath and he gives us favor. We deserve death and he gives us life. God alone grants reconciliation. It is his work. And that's one way that that's demonstrated is that he gives us a new relationship with him. But Paul goes further than just that. Yes, he gives us a reconciled relationship, but he also emphasizes in this new stuff that that God produces in us. He also says that we have a new ministry to the world. A new relationship that is reconciled and a reconciling ministry to the world. Again, this is communicated in verse 18 and verse 19. Again, articulating the same essential truths. In verse 18, Paul says, He gave us a ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. There at the end of verse 18. In other words, Paul says, You know what God gives to each new creature? Each one who has been reconciled, he gives them a new ministry. And it's not just any ministry. It's not just the broad task of ministry. No, Paul says you're given the ministry of reconciliation. Which seems oddly specific. You, if you are a new creature, were given the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? Well, verse 19, I think, helps us understand this a little bit more. Look down at verse 19, the last phrase. He has committed us to the word of reconciliation. That's another way of saying that same thing. Every new creature has been committed by God to the word of reconciliation. What is the word of reconciliation? It's the message The message of reconciliation. The message of reconciliation is given to everyone who has been reconciled. What is that message? He just articulated it in verse 19. That God in Christ reconciles the world to himself. That's the word of reconciliation. That's the message of reconciliation. That God has done a work that paves the path for peace. We are given the ministry of that word. He has committed every reconciled individual to take the word of reconciliation to the world. He has committed us to it. Literally the terminology there is he he placed that message in us. He committed us to it. He took the message of what Christ, of what he did in Christ, and he placed it in us. He gave us the ministry of communicating that message to the world. So as men who are on a mission, Paul says that we have been given the ministry of speaking the word of reconciliation. Now, this first point that we're emphasizing tonight is emphasizing the fact that God is the one who is active here. This is not yet, in Paul's terminology, about our action that's coming in just a moment. Paul's message to this point is simple. God is the one who grants reconciliation. It comes from him. Both a relationship of reconciliation with him and a ministry of reconciliation to the world. He is the reconciler. So if we, again, zoom out to one of the purposes that Paul is accomplishing in this book. He's saying, how can I minister in the way that I do? He says, because because I'm a new creature. 
And everything in me that is new is from God. And when God saves someone, he sends someone. Paul's saying, when God saved me, when he reconciled me, he gave me the ministry of reconciliation. And that's what I'm doing. That's why I carry out my ministry the way that I do. When God reconciles us to himself, he does not just leave us in a stagnant state of peace. Rather, he places in us, he charges us with taking that message of peace to those who are not reconciled. So our status as reconciled, and our service of reconciliation all comes from God. These are the new things that he produces in every new creature. Well, Paul's not done talking about the ministry of reconciliation, this this service of reconciliation, but his perspective is going to change. The first emphasis in verses 18 and 19 are from God's perspective, what God has done to produce this in us. But the second reminder about reconciliation tonight, point number two, second reminder about reconciliation for every new creature is we are the ones who proclaim reconciliation. God is the one who grants reconciliation. We are the ones who proclaim reconciliation. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors. Ambassadorship is a role that has spanned across history. What it meant for Paul and the Corinthian church. Is essentially the same as what ambassadorship means for us. The United States has ambassadors and diplomats and their job is to represent the president or governing officials. They speak on behalf of the power that is behind them. They speak, for example, with the president's authority if they are representing the president of the United States. They negotiate on his behalf. In a very realistic sense, an ambassador is the mouthpiece for the authority behind them. The authority speaks through the ambassador. In Paul's day, the same is true. An ambassador officially represented the one who sent him. He brought a message. He negotiated. They would have been, this is actual documented terminology that they used for ambassadors. They would have been introduced as an ambassador on behalf of whoever it is that sent them. Paul says, we, those who have been reconciled, we are ambassadors. We are representatives. We are sent on behalf of Christ. We are ambassadors of Christ. He explains it further. The sense in which we are ambassadors is explained in the next phrase in verse 20. We're ambassadors for Christ. Like, what, does that, what does that mean? It's as though God himself were making an appeal through us. God is calling to the world through the reconciled. He's making an appeal through us. We represent him and he speaks through the reconciled. That does not mean that you are, that that, that the words you speak are, are inspired scripture or are new revelation. That God is communicating anything new to you. The, the, The communication has already been delivered. And it reveals a message of reconciliation. We are called to take the word of reconciliation, God's work for the world, 
for, for the world revealed to us in his word and to communicate it to those around us. When that is happening, when we're taking that message, Paul says God is speaking to the world through you. That's a heavy truth. God is speaking to the world through the reconciled. God is making an appeal, Paul says. There's, there's urgency in that word. You could translate it, God is urging the world through you. It's an urgent message. An urgent ministry. We have the all-important message, the message of reconciliation on our lips. This is not trivial. It must be delivered with urgency. God has willed that this message go to every man. And to communicate that message, he commissions ambassadors, those who are reconciled. Fundamental to ambassadorship is that we carry out the will of the one who sends. Ambassadors and diplomats, they may have a certain reputation of being untruthful. Sir Henry Wotton, an English diplomat from the 1600s, humorously labeled as ambassador, humorously labeled an ambassador as an honest gentleman sent to speak lies for the good of his country. Diplomats may have a bad reputation, but the reality is that ambassadors who cannot be trusted don't have jobs. When an ambassador speaks in error, it is a serious mistake. The authority who sent them is speaking through them. We are not speaking the words of any mere man, we are speaking the message from God. The authority of our message is not with us. It is the message from God. The authority of an ambassador is always in the one that he represents. If you've been reconciled with God, you have the absolute privilege to speak God's message to the world in such a way that it's as if God is speaking through you. There's, there's much to evaluate here. Are those, who, are those who hear me hearing the message that God has entrusted to me? I encourage you to evaluate and ask that question. Are those, do those who hear me hear the message that God has entrusted to me? Am I faithfully taking the word of reconciliation, the gospel message to those who need it? Am I a good ambassador? Am I a good ambassador? Faithfully presenting the message that God has placed within me. If you imagine a, a president who has decided to forgive offenses and offer peace to a nation at war. He wants to forgive their offenses. He wants to offer peace. And so he sends his ambassador to negotiate this peace. That ambassador has one job. Tell them that we are willing to grant peace and to offer friendship. And the ambassador goes... And he meets with the leaders from this nation and he returns and the president says, how did it go? And the ambassador says, you know, it never really came up. We got to talking and frankly, I just, I, I forgot about the message. No, no foreign policy could be successful apart from faithful diplomats. It only works if they're accurately taking the message. Paul says, if you're a new creature, you are given the ministry of ambassadorship. You, let's just think about this. You are God's choice for taking his message to the world. You're his choice. You are the ones he have chosen for taking the message to the world. Christians are the ambassadors. 
God's written word does not go forth on its own. It does not go forth on its own. Romans 10, 14. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Do you see yourself as personally responsible to be taking to those around you this offer of peace from God? The reconciled are the ambassadors. Perhaps one of the reasons we so often struggle with this is because we view this ambassadorship primarily as the role of the corporate church rather than of the individual. If your understanding of your role as ambassador is that you just, you invite people to church so that your pastor can evangelize them, you're misunderstanding your role as an ambassador. I'm not saying don't invite friends to church. That's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing and a wonderful opportunity. But recognize that you are an ambassador. Your job is not to bring them to an ambassador. The reconciled are the ambassadors. They are carrying the message of peace. You have all that you need to be a faithful ambassador because you are a new creature who has received reconciliation. Evangelism is little more than offering to others what has been offered to you. The message of reconciliation is actually very simple. Paul puts that message on full display at the end of verse 20. He says, we beg you. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. He's pleading, begging them, be reconciled to God. This is what it sounds like to be about the word of reconciliation. I plead with you. I beg you. It's a request of the highest urgency. Be reconciled to God. This is the call of the ambassador. Be reconciled. Be reconciled. It's, it's a command. It's an interesting, it's an interesting call because it's a command, but it's a passive command. Look at the difference between an active and a passive verb. The command, be reconciled is something that someone else must act upon you, and yet it's commanded to the individual. Be reconciled. We already saw that God is the one who grants reconciliation. God initiates this this thing. We can't pay what reconciliation costs. Only Christ could do that. So Paul issues a command. We know that in Paul's theology, there's... Certainly God's sovereignty over salvation. And yet he certainly teaches that man is responsible. Man is responsible and culpable for his actions. I love that in this text, Paul just says, God has done the work, but you must be reconciled. You must be reconciled. He commands them, be reconciled to God. So he extends the call of an ambassador with the message of reconciliation on his lips. Be reconciled. Obey God in faith and repentance to receive the peace that only God can give. He doesn't just leave it at this. He explains in one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, he explains how that peace is possible for sinners before God. He does that in verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness 
of God in him. And that is just a wonderful, beautiful, succinct summary of the gospel message. He, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, who was sinless, who was perfect, to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. That's one of the most amazing verses, I believe, in the Bible. Every word is loaded. Jesus, the the holy and perfect God in flesh, he knew no sin, both because he is the perfect God and because he never committed any sin on any level as a man. And yet, the text says here in, in in a strange expression, that God the Father made him, literally the terminology here is, God made him sin. He made him sin. He made the one who knew no sin, sin. It's not to say that he made Christ commit sins, but that the Father identified him with sin. He does not make Christ a sinner, but at the cross, Christ is treated and viewed by God as sin itself. This is, this, is, this is unfathomable. To call Christ a sinner is, is blasphemy. Christ is no sinner. Jesus did not ever sin. And yet, and perhaps the greatest wonder in the universe, God for his enemies makes Christ to be sin. Why? So that we, who who know sin intimately and cannot be separated from it, might become the righteousness of God. He imparts our sin to Christ and imparts Christ's righteousness to us. Jesus takes on our sin and receives the penalty for us so that we might take on his righteousness and receive his reward. This is the gospel. This is the message that the ambassador carries. Let there be no mistake. This is the message that must be on our lips. Man can be at peace with God. Because man can have the righteousness of God. Because God became sin for us. If you're at peace with God... You must recognize and own that you are now armed with this message. When God saves someone, he sends them. When he saves them, he sends them. Not necessarily to Africa as Dr. Flanagan was concerned. Dr. Flanagan, yes? Yes, okay. Not necessarily to Africa, but make no mistake, you are sent. You are sent. God sends everyone that he saves. When God reconciles, he makes them into ambassadors, pleading for others to be reconciled. We are not just given peace with God. We are called to preach the path to peace. Harriet Tubman, a a name you, I presume, know, was born into slavery. She lived as a slave for some 30 years before she escaped from slavery. Upon finding freedom, Harriet Tubman did not just sit back and enjoy her freedom. She became truly a freedom fighter, she began a daring task of helping immediately other slaves to freedom. She traveled back and forth 
behind enemy lines, risking her freedom so that others might be free. Now, our freedom is not at all at risk, but the task that Harriet Tubman undertook is precisely the task that we are called to. You have been given peace, and you are now called to show others the path to peace. Because when God sends, when God saves, he sends. We are to be men proclaiming the path to peace with God. Men on a mission. Men on a mission. I want you to really embrace that identity. An ambassador. An ambassador proclaiming a message of peace. Let me just say on that too, that if we are going to be proclaiming a message of peace, it's important that we are a people of peace. That means preaching a message from peace with God, and it means that we are to be people of peace. People will not find a message of peace, the proclamation of peace with God, compelling if it is coming from people who are not peaceful. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. If there's anyone you would expect to be a peacemaker, it's a person who's preaching the path to peace. Let's embrace that identity. Let's work to be, as Paul says, at peace with all men. Your peaceful reputation matters as you take a message of peace. Christians are, Christians are often known for what they're against. Christians are often known for what they, what they hate. I think in light of this text, I'm reminded that I want to be known as a person of peace who offers a path of peace to God. Look, part of that message includes statements about sin. You cannot proclaim the path to peace without telling people that they are at enmity with God. That, that requires explaining sin. And you, you may be hated for that message. Scripture makes that clear. Part of the message includes sin. And you may develop a bad reputation for telling people that they are enemies of God. But let that bad reputation come from what Scripture says about every man. Don't let it come from your attitude. Don't let that bad reputation come from your tone. And certainly not from the fact that we preach peace, but live in hostility with all men. Be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker who is preaching the path to peace. Dave asked me to specifically share some applications of this as we think um, so we think towards the younger generation. I work primarily with young people and just encourage you in one sense that the gospel message is the gospel message and, and people are saved as the gospel message is preached. I think we all know that to be true. There's not a different message for young people, but in my working with young people, and this may be true in every generation, but I'm just especially sensitive to this right now. This, this proclamation of the path to peace is really demonstrated in relationships. It's demonstrated in relationships as I look at our young people, they have, they have more information. They have more sales pitches, advice, and influence coming at them than I believe any generation before. And that influence and those sales pitches and life advice is almost always packaged in succinct, clear, effective messaging. And the most popular form of media consumption right now amongst the next generation is 5 to 30 second video clips. That is dominating the consumption of 
information amongst the youngest generation. Students are consuming those types of videos by the millions. What's, I'm convinced in the face of that, what's really going to show the path to peace is not another well-packaged 30-second video clip. They are consuming those by the millions and are forgetting them as fast as they see them. What I've become convinced as I work with young people is that this, this message is best delivered in relationships. I'm not saying someone can't be saved from a short presentation of the gospel. That's, that's certainly happened. I'm saying that demonstrating the path to peace and illustrating peacefulness is really shown in relationships. And as I work with young people, I've just become more and more convinced that in the midst of a distant world in which social media dominates and there are gaps in relationships and there are circles of identity that I, I just, as I see them, it seems like they're becoming more and more tight. I think part of that is that students and young people are so interconnected with people that they never could have talked with before. It's so easy for them to find people that only think the way they think. And only see the world the way they see the world. And they're not forced necessarily to rub shoulders with people that, that may see the world differently for them. And so those circles of identity, this is a popular term today, their identity is becoming tighter and tighter. When I look at young people, and again, this may carry across every generation, but I feel this especially right now with young people. They want to know. They want to know that you care. They want to feel that you're interested in them. That, that's lacking in many of this tight identity relationships that exist, maybe not even in a, in a personal sense, but, but across things like social media. And learn, learn young people's names. Learn what they enjoy doing. Know what sports they play or what extracurriculars they're, they're involved in. That, that relationship is where peace is demonstrated so clearly. Learn their names. Learn what they like. Build relationships. Be friends. Be friends. I can, I, my, my son is only six years old, but the people in our church that, that know his name, that speak to him, that ask them how he's doing, I mean, on a Sunday morning, he's, he's running up to them. He's greeting them. He's eager to see them. They, they make him smile. Dave asked me to specifically speak to just how this path to peace is demonstrated and shown with young people. And in my experience with them, that is the path to proclaim peace. Not exclusively, not exhaustively. But if you want to effectively be demonstrating the pathway to peace, that happens in relationships. And again, I don't believe that that's isolated. I don't believe that that's isolated to young people. But I see that as especially true in light of some of the temptations and realities of our day. If there's any hope for young souls... If there's any hope for any souls in Flint Hills, it is in proclaiming the name of Jesus. And if souls in Flint Hills will find salvation in the name of Jesus, it's only because those who are reconciled are taking the gospel, the message of reconciliation to their colleagues, to their neighbors, to their friends, to their family members. We say it every week, we in our church, we say this every week, that we exist to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them. The only way to make disciples, the only way to spread a passion for God's glory is to be armed with one message and one message only. And that is that 
Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So let's plead. Let's plead to those around us. Be reconciled to God. God in Christ reconciled us to himself. So if you've received that priceless gift, praise God and proclaim that path to peace. Father, we want to be ambassadors who are amazed, amazed that you would offer peace to your enemies. Father, keep us thankful, keep us amazed. And let that gratitude and awe propel us into being ambassadors who are proclaiming the path to peace. Keep that message on our lips that the one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, this is a convicting topic. I know my study for this was convicting. and I've heard it said that if you want to preach a convincing sermon, preach on evangelism. Lord, in the midst of even frustration with ourselves over perhaps not carrying out this message faithfully, Pray that you'd help us to find encouragement together tonight that there would be an army of men from Flint Hills Bible Church that would be ambassadors for your son, that we would encourage each other in this, that we would challenge each other in this. Remind ourselves of this amazing truth that you offer peace to your enemies. Father, thank you for your grace by which we can take this message to the world. It's in your son's name that we pray, amen. Thank you.